The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, What do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Back in January 1978, when I was a newly minted PhD, I was desperate for a job, and one opened up um, they needed somebody quick, and I, I needed a job. So I got a position at Penn State's College of Medicine at the Hershey Medical Center. And I ended up staying there for eight years. The first year, I was in way over my head, but it went along pretty smoothly. <clears throat> and then March 29, 1979 happened, which was the date of the Three Mile Island event. We were at work and we received news of an uncontrolled release of radiation. The medical center was seven miles from the nuclear power plant where this happened. And it was a surreal experience. Looking out my window, I could see people running out to their cars with newspapers over their head to protect themselves from the radioactive fallout. We were told to evacuate if we were not necessary staff. So I didn't have much. I got my car and my bike and my clothes, and I went 120 miles north to my hometown of Scranton, only to find people there were fleeing farther north. <laughs> and then there were the necessary staff who had to remain, the medical students and house staff and support services. And in true kind of medical school um, dark humor, uh, they, they had parties that night where women wore tinfoil, aluminum foil bras, and everyone was served plutonium punch. So, it was deeply disorienting, however, <clears throat> because the threat was invisible, and it was unclear how to protect ourselves, and it was uncertain how long before we knew if we had been exposed or not. And it became a threat to life and to the social fabric. And paradoxically, I felt very much alive throughout it. 
This is true of many epidemics and similar large-scale tragedies. Shortly after my time at, at, at the medical center, we heard the first reports of um, the, what became the AIDS crisis, which decimated a generation of gay men and others, but in the process forged a visible community of compassion and political action. Then we all experienced 9-11 in 2001 and the way we reacted coming together out of fear and out of fury. Then in 2002, the SARS epidemic. And then 2005, Hurricane Katrina, which among other things exposed our systemic racism and our lack of care for the poor. And then the Ebola viruses of 2014 and 2016. And now, of course, the coronavirus. You would think that we would be prepared, but preparedness is costly and disturbing and not at all popular. And we just have to look at the catastrophic decision of the Trump administration to dismantle a Department of Disease Preparedness just two years ago, and we are reaping the fruits of that decision. Events like all of these can bring out the best in us. <clears throat> I think of, for example, the feast we celebrate in the Episcopal Church on September 9th, the feast of Constance and her companions, the martyrs of Memphis. Men and women who stayed at a time of uh, fever uh, to take care of the sick and paid the cost of it with their own lives. There are heroic expressions of love and concern <clears throat> happening all the time around us, and particularly among those who must stay with those for whom they must care. Uh, I think of first responders and medical care people uh, throughout the world. Doctors Without Borders becoming the first of a whole litany we could go on. But events like this, too, can bring out the worst in us. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, opinion editor, had a, a column on Thursday entitled, Pandemics Kill Compassion, too, where he talks about the historic events of, of plagues going back to the Middle Ages. And as he said, some disasters like hurricanes and earthquakes can bring people together. But if history is any judge, pandemics generally drive them apart. These are crises in which social distancing is a virtue. Dread overwhelms the normal bonds of human affection. And that has been true as well in our history. He talked a bit about the 1918 flu epidemic in the United States, which killed something on the order of 675,000 people in the United States. And yet almost nobody talked about it after it was over. Growing up, I never heard about it. It, it, it did get some um, play uh, at the centennial year, um, but it was an amazingly destructive epidemic. But one of the things that was required was that people look out for themselves and sometimes turn a deaf ear to the needs and cries of others. And um, Brooks says, 
When it was over, people didn't talk about it. There are very few books or plays written about it. Perhaps it's because people didn't like what they had become. It was a shameful memory and therefore suppressed. These events, like the coronavirus, challenge us on so many levels, from the societal to the professional to the interpersonal and psychological and certainly the spiritual. We've all been and shall continue to be inundated with medical and public health advice. We all now know something about hygienic and disinfecting measures, about social distancing, and about, as our new mantra has it, flattening the curve. So I'm not going to mention those, at least not directly. But I'd like to dwell for a few minutes this morning on what our Christian faith counsels us and empowers us to be and to do in these turbulent and frightening times. And nothing I'm going to say here is original. I will quote from those who are more articulate and wiser than I. And that begins with presiding Bishop Michael Curry, <clears throat> who this past week, in one of a number of statements that he made, said, the next 30 to 60 days at the least are simply going to be unlike anything we have experienced in recent history, even including 9-11. The dilemma of what we know and what we don't know will continue to complicate our decision-making and our lives. Obedience to the moral primacy of love for the neighbor must direct us. And then speaking to the executive council of the Episcopal Church, he said, again, I quote, in this particular moment, when we are affected by the coronavirus and its collateral effects and impacts, whether directly or indirectly, whether physically, emotionally, spiritually, or economically, we are all affected. The truth is, we are all in this together. We do not choose it this way, but we are. We've been in this together, whether we were aware of it or wanted to acknowledge it or not. We're in this together. We're actually part of each other for good or ill. We are a human family. We may be a dysfunctional human family, but we are a family. And the truth is, God made us this way. God made us for God and for each other. And we are at our best when we are one with our God and one with each other. Our associate, Bishop Brian Cole, Bishop of the Diocese of Eastern Tennessee, posted a few days ago on Facebook the following. Yesterday, in a phone conversation with a wise and faithful friend, he reflected on the idea of surrender. In so many seasons, we are not in control, yet we believe otherwise. In this Lent, with a global pandemic, a sense of not being in control can rightly feel apocalyptic. 
This is a time of revealing, of rediscovering who we are, what we value, and if we have the capacity, with God's help, to be for each other. He continues, As soon as most plans have been developed and shared over the last few weeks, they have become outdated as facts on the ground change. Realizing the details on how we will gather or what we will do when gathering may continue to change. But what will not change is this. Christians stay connected. We are a body and we cannot say we have no need of each other. Beyond that, as Christians, we are also for the stranger, the other. In our baptismal promises, we promise to seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves. We promise to respect the dignity of all. Brothers and sisters, it is true. We are not in control, at least not totally. There is a necessary surrender to reality. Sometimes difficult realities required of us all. In that sense, there is an obvious Lenten and even Paschal character to this crisis. This may not be the Lent we chose, but it is the Lent we have been given, perhaps even gifted with. Let us make the most of it. But let me also stress Surrender is not fatalism. It is accepting what is and then embracing disciplines of right living, wise acting, and compassionate loving required of us as human beings and as the people of God. So, there is agency here. There is the ability and the requirement to act based on loving knowledge in the midst of great fear, inconvenience, and yes, even the specter of death, along with continuing areas of unknowing. An agency that is an ability to act or refrain from acting that is still ours. And it is an agency that is exercised not only for our own sake, but for the life of others and for the life of the world. Some of us will be called to risk ourselves for the health and safety of others. Some of us will be called to comfort the sick and console the afflicted or lonely and accompany the worried well and help keep the social fabric intact. Some of us will be called to simply protect ourselves by social distancing and accept it hygienic practices. And some will not know what to do, will feel overwhelmed, anxious, confused, depressed, and to varying degrees, that's all of us, isn't it? We need certain virtues now. We need the virtue of patience with each other and with ourselves, and the virtue of tolerance of differing decisions by others that are not, at least not manifestly, 
a serious danger to public health, our own health, or that of our neighbors and our world. You're aware of our decision to close our guest house after Vespers today, but to continue this open space for public worship. I was reflecting that if we were just on the other side of the river in Dutchess County, this gathering would be illegal because in that county, any gathering over 20 people is outlawed. But we may have to soon reconsider our decision about public worship. We don't know yet. So in this, as in so much, we need the virtue of flexibility. We will, like the Hebrews in today's first reading, proceed in stages through this desert. And it will not be a nice, smooth, straight line. We will curve and meander and perhaps backtrack and retrace our steps, but always, I hope, with our ears and eyes and heart and minds open and responsive to the voices and needs of others. Bishop Cole, in concluding his statement on Facebook, said, when this coronavirus season passes, and it shall pass, we shall still be a people not in control. The need for surrender remains. May our connections be deeper. May we, with God's help, be shown to be a people for each other. I regret that we didn't have time to reflect together on the readings today, particularly that extraordinary gospel of the Samaritan woman at the well. But let me just make two quick comments in passing about that. The first is this is the first of three very long gospels. Next week, we get an equally long one, if we're in church at all, about the man born blind, and then also from the Gospel of John, the third week, the Gospel of the Raising of Lazarus. These were readings chosen in the early church to be given to those preparing for holy baptism to reflect on. We assume that they knew the general outlines of the story of Jesus. But somewhere in the early church, people thought these three readings would give them meat and insight onto the deeper journey into Christ, that there's more than meets the eye, and that we need, our, we need to leave our jars behind and have our eyes open and our tombs burst open. This Lent is a preparation for all of our baptismal renewal, so I would commend these gospel passages to you, whether you're in church or not. The woman in today's gospel does not have a name in our Western Christian tradition, but in the Eastern Church, she's known as Fotini, or if you're Russian, Svetlana, which means the enlightened one. She's also called equal to the apostles because her directness with Jesus leads her to invite others to experience this Jesus who had told her everything she had ever done. Her question, 
Could he be the Messiah is still our question. Could he for you, for me, for now? A lot of people have been quoting a prayer from the New Zealand prayer book. And I will read it with us and pray it with us. God of the present moment, God who in Jesus stills the storm and soothes the frantic heart, bring hope and courage to us as we wait or work in uncertainty. Bring hope that you will make us the equal of whatever lies ahead. Bring us courage to endure what cannot be avoided, for your will is health and wholeness. You are God, and we need you. Amen.